1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. What? A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. Yeah. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So with me today is Allison Williams. Hi, Allison. How are you? I'm doing good, Todd. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Uh, so you've done quite a bit of research around today's topic, and we're going to talk in a little bit about how language and particularly metaphor affects the way we think uh, in faith and life. And we've noted lots of times that it's easy to take shots at the church, right? There's a lot of excess there and difficulty. Yes. But as as we stated in the introduction, there's there's lots that is cast as good news in the church that sounds more like bad news, but we've also thought recently that, that it's not just false claims within the church in terms of uh, hope, but there's lots of false claims outside of the church and outside of religion as well. Our producer Rick alerted us to an article from The Guardian recently that you thought was interesting, I thought it was interesting as well, so mm -hmm. uh, why don't you just summarize that for us? Well, it's written by uh, a woman who's a gynecologist in England, and she's writing mostly to kind of push back on some of these particularly health and wellness claims that are ridiculous, that are false, and that are actually bringing a lot of damage to women. And she sees it, um, she sees a correlation between the claims of the religious right and language that's used about abortion and implication for women's bodies. And she, she ties those in, and brings a parallel to this wellness industry. Wow. Specifically, she deals with goop, and she talks about that uh, specifically from the article, she quotes, the anti-science views of wellness and the anti-science views of the religious right, like themes like purity, cleanliness, things that I definitely heard growing up, um, that they have similar rituals and that it's predatory and it's the patriarchy by another name. So it's still this way to control women's bodies. So you see it outside of the church as well as within this the church. This is um, Jen Gunter, right? Her name yes. Is? Yeah. I, I know she was here in town just Very recently. recently. I, was, I was reading a little article in the local newspaper about it. And uh, um, yeah, I thought it, it was curious that she, I don't know if you'd say enemies, but she's been kind of criticized from that left side, you know, because she's standing yeah. against these claims and certainly something that's interesting and I think parallels to this uh, idea of control, but then also um, we'll be talking today about these, these metaphors instead of masculine and military metaphors, yeah. um, looking at feminine metaphors. Uh, and we've got these contemporary examples in popular culture, of course, of this kind of control. Like I think about like Handmaid's Tale, watching that or other things where, but I don't think it's just, uh, I don't think it's just fiction. I think that as someone who's worked in churches for years, uh, and whether it's Christian religion or others, other religions, um, right across the line, when, whenever a religion gets more rigid, it seems for some reason like one of the first areas of fear and control is around women's bodies. So what you're bringing yeah. here is interesting that some of that is coming not only from a church culture, but potentially like well outside of church culture to this like health and wellness stuff that... Uh, yeah, there does seem to definitely be this um, universal theme of let's make sure the women don't get out of control. 
And we want to make sure that like, if you keep people uneducated, and this is what um, Jen Gunter says in her article, and she's, she said on other occasions that if you keep women uneducated, specifically for her about your bodies, about your sexuality, about just your own physicality, um, you can control them way more easily. That's interesting too, because you think of like uh, Malala, Yosefsai, right? Or all these, like, uh, again, across religious lines, different religious yeah. communities that are literally saying, and Christian faith has done this as well at various times, uh, women shouldn't be educated, that it's something that, and so to think that it's not something that's present today, it is still present today. So Very much so, yeah. In, in preparing for this podcast, you also called a friend who is a midwife, and interestingly enough, has also been a missionary, yeah. and so it brings some of these ideas together. What did she have to say that you found interesting? Well, firstly, she was very interested in, in doing um, that, that we were recording this and thought that there was a lot of really important things to be said. For her specifically, she kind of almost bristled a bit at the term missionary because it has a lot of a lot of baggage that comes with yeah. it. There's who wants to be called a missionary? Well, it, it brings people, back echoes of like colonialism and coming right. in as you know, like the white people, and we know how to fix everything. Right. And she she really pushed against that because it's not how she understood evangelism. And when so she was a missionary and a midwife at the same time. Yeah, okay. she opened um, she opened a clinic in in Rwanda that was kind of like her big thing there. So it was doing a lot of education of. Um, of local Rwandans so that they were empowered to help their own communities. And when I was talking with her, she thought that this midwifery language was beautiful because when you can look at evangelism in some of those same, in some of those same lights, you realize that your position is to come and to support people, to meet them where they're at, and it's not to force them to do anything, and it's not to deal with metrics, that it's it's joining God in his work mm. and not just pushing him out and doing it for that's, him. That's interesting, though, because the real, the missionary kind of impetus itself is, and you know, many people would think that that's traditionally to go and, like, save souls, right? Yeah. To, exactly, to impose, to get people to, like, leave behind their culture or whatever it is. And so she obviously even though she went out and was probably sent by a church or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they must have thought that's what she was going to do. Well, she did tell me that they, they were, she would always be asked about metrics, how many baptisms they'd had, how many converts that they had. And the language was uncomfortable to her because mm. she viewed her job was not to, was to come alongside people in their communities and not tell them what to do, but to support them and to love them and to give space for God to work. And so it was, it was really interesting mm. talking to her. That's fantastic. Well, I, I want to quickly note, I, I'm just thinking through this, this idea of metaphor and language that we'll be talking about. And uh, in the many years that I was a pastor, I think back to people, good, good people that I love, all those kinds of exceptional kind of comments, uh, who many would come up to me and say that they, they can't stand poetry or fiction or metaphor <laughs> and they just want plain language. So if you were talking in, in a sermon about... Uh, you know, let's understand this psalm or something, uh, they would say, no poetry for me or whatever. The problem, of course, is that a huge portion of the Bible is poetry. And it's, well, you'd ask some of these same people, like, what's your favorite chapter? And they would say Psalm 23, right? Yes, the whole thing poetry, is, is metaphor. metaphor. <laughs> so uh, if you're one of those people, and maybe that we're going to be talking about metaphor and language, you might be done listening already. Um, but we would prefer that you keep listening and, and welcome our guest. And uh, as a segue towards our guest, we're just going to play a little clip here, comedy clip from George Carlin, speaking about metaphor, even in something like sports. 
Now, baseball and football are different from one another in other kind of interesting ways, I think. First of all, um, baseball is a 19th century pastoral game. Football is a 20th century technological struggle. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium, sometimes called Soldier Field or War Memorial Stadium. <laughs> Baseball begins in the spring, the season of new life. Football begins in the fall when everything is dying. In football, you wear a helmet. In baseball, you wear a cap. <laughs> football is concerned with downs. What down is it? Baseball is concerned with ups. Who's up? Are you up? I'm not up. He's up. In football, the specialist comes in to kick. In baseball, the specialist comes in to relieve someone. In football, you receive a penalty. In baseball, you make an error. <laughs> Whoops! Football has hitting, clipping, spearing, blocking, piling on, late hitting, unnecessary roughness, and personal fouls. Baseball has the sacrifice. <laughs> football is played in any kind of weather. Rain, sleet, snow, hail, mud, can't read the numbers on the field, can't read the yard markers, can't read the players' numbers, the struggle will continue. In baseball, if it rains, we don't come out to play. <laughs> Our guest today is Jen Richards. Uh, Jen is currently the pastor of discipleship at Life Church Vancouver in Mount Pleasant and is also a teacher with the Vancouver School Board and having taught in Toronto for eight years. Uh, Jen graduated from Regent College this past spring with an MA in Applied Theology. Uh, she's passionate about developing safe spaces where people can bring both their questions and doubts as well as their wonder and awe about God and see them inform one another in profound ways. Uh, we've asked Jen onto the rector's cupboard after seeing a paper she presented at a conference last spring. That paper is called Moving from Soldiers to Midwives, an Exploration of Belief and Practice Around Evangelism. Jen, welcome to the rector's cupboard. Thank you. It's so good to be here. This is fun. <laughs> so, so far. So Jen, we, we welcome our guests by opening the rector's cupboard and sharing oh. what's in there. So we have an actual rector with us, or he's, he's a past rector, Ken Bell. Hi, Ken. Hi, Todd. Ken was an Anglican priest for a whole bunch of years, and uh, Ken determines what's in the cupboard. Uh, Mr. Ken Bell. Thank you very much. Well, today we are at uh, JJ Bean uh, Coffee, as Todd pointed out earlier, and we are going to open the rector's cupboard right now and see what's in there. And what we have in there is coffee, appropriate for where we are. So I'm going to introduce uh, Angela. Angela is a manager at one of the JJ Bean locations. Angela, welcome. Hi, Ken. Thank you. And you have two different coffees for us to try. Tell us a bit about them and why we're trying them and what we ought to taste when we taste them. Excellent. So today we're going to be tasting two different single origin coffees. And just to explain that, a single origin coffee is sourced from one farm or group of farms in a specific growing region. This means that the coffee will be able to express a specific set of flavor characteristics based on its terroir. 
That's a fun word. You can look that up if you want to know what terroir, terroir means. Terroir. It's a French word. Uh, today, we will be tasting a coffee from Africa. It's an Ethiopian from the farm Worka. And we'll also be tasting a very special coffee we have right now, the Pandora Reserva de la Finca from the farm El Injerto in Guatemala, which is a Central American coffee. So what we can expect to taste today, we'll start with the Worka, is going to be tasting notes of jasmine, nectar, and it says perfumed on our tasting notes. You might think, how do you taste perfumed? Uh, keep in mind that when we make tasting notes, it will be not just the taste of the flavor you might have on your palate in your mouth, but we also include the olfactory senses and you might smell certain things that we also include in the tasting notes. The second coffee that we'll be passing around, the El Injerto Pandora Reserva de la Finca, is uh, having tasting notes of peach, tropical, grapefruit, creamy, and complex. Is that the one that's dried on African beds? Yes, yes. And that one is an auction lot coffee that uh, we won the bid this year. So it's very special to us here at JJ. I'll pass the coffees around now. Excellent. Thank you very much. This is a far cry from the uh, nabob that my <laughs> mom used to drink by the uh, beer stein load in the morning. She would pour herself two beer steins worth of coffee and chug those down. And I think these are a bit different. So this is the first one. This is the one so from Ethiopia. This is, yep. This is the workup. And this so, is the perfume. Yes. Jasmine, nectarine. And when tasting, it's like with wine, you'll taste whatever you have on your palate. So in a way, there's no wrong answer but there are a few right ones. <laughs> Very nice. Jen, what do you think of that? Yeah, I kind of taste, I have the fruity undertones that Whoa. are there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm definitely tasting jasmine, believe it or not. All right. Uh, you have no fruity undertones? I don't have any fruity <laughs> undertones, but I do taste jasmine. All right, let's try that next one. I'm looking forward to this one because it's expensive. So it must it must be better because just like wine and scotch, if it's more expensive, it so is somebody better. Somebody told me it's like $40 a pound if I wanted to buy it. Yes, that's correct. But well worth wow. it. Well worth it. Mmm, peachy. I am tasting the peachy notes. I get a lot of the grapefruit, and I smell a lot of the citrus as well when we're doing cuppings in Is that, the store. Like, you really do, or are you just making that up? <laughs> Good question, Todd. Good question. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Okay. No, I really do. Okay. Uh, after working in coffee for five years, doing uh, coffee tastings in the store all the time, I, I would say that my palate is oh, Ricky, yeah, hopefully pass developed. Oh, Ricky, our producer. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And one of the things that is special about JJ Bean is they do make sure they get to know the coffee growers. They get to go to the regions. They make relationships with the farmers. And so that's how they get to know these people and bring them in and, and really support them. So we want to thank, thank JJ you. Bean and yeah, the coffee. And we're going to oh, continue. You're going to stay with us, Ken? I'm going to stay with okay. you. Thanks uh, for having and, me. And uh, we're now thank back you, over Andrew. to the conversation. And Todd and Jen and Allison. And we'll keep sipping as the rector's oh, cupboard remains love open. A good coffee and conversation. Can't get better than that. I don't know which one's mm-hmm. mine. <laughs> All right. So, Jen, obviously the catalyst to us asking you to come on was this paper that we discovered. Um, what was your catalyst for writing it? Yeah, in my graduate studies, I, at the end last spring, needed wrote a curriculum for evangelism and trying to think of what are tools for a common person in the church mm-hmm. who doesn't have theological background, who just wants 
people to know Jesus in their workplace and school and neighborhoods. And I have found that I gather with people who have different faith than I do. I love like partying with them, having fun with them, doing social justice things, but I'm terrified of talking about <laughs> Jesus. Like I will show Jesus, but terrified. It's like this awkward, I get awkward more mm -hmm. than they do. And so in this, um, just in this, trying to make a tool for people like myself, yeah. so even myself in mind. I realized though, the farther um, I went into it, that there was this holistic problem rather than knowing, oh, do I need to have more answers for my faith? No, that's not really the problem. Oh, do I need to be able to have more confidence? No, that's not really the problem. It got bigger and bigger and got to metaphor. So realizing that my metaphor and our metaphor was the problem in a lot of this. And then when we can change our metaphor and have more accurate framework, then a lot of the other pieces either become glaringly obvious that there's something wrong with them yeah. or that um, they can just fit in a different spot in my faith and in the way that I'm sharing Jesus and, and being part of a community that's trying to do that well. So the main, like, summarize the main consideration of the paper then. Yeah, totally. Um, the main consideration I realized uh, as I uh, finally was able to articulate it was that our, traditionally our framework for evangelism has been a military metaphor. And so it's so interesting, I went to the library in my college and went to the theological um, section with all about evangelism and I just started pulling books and looking solely at the table of contents and constantly it was similar, it was these military metaphors that I think a lot of people and my friends and my church would totally disagree with. It's language we would never use anywhere else anymore and so realizing there's something wrong there and then reading a book called um, To Alter Your World by Michael Frost and yeah. Christiana Rice. There was, I went to a workshop in Vancouver with Christiana and that was where I was introduced to this midwifery metaphor and this birth metaphor and just finding a lot more freedom um, in terms of being able to see partnership with God. It put God at the main character of all this rather than me and making sure that I have the right answers and it just felt a lot more freeing for me and for others as I gave people tools for this. Yeah, I discovered that as well uh, through reading your paper and I've read uh, the Frost and Rice book and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I just thought I was being lazy in my evangelism because totally. this didn't feel like I, I, I couldn't feel comfortable with being really aggressive. But I was like, oh my gosh, I finally have language to actually describe what felt like what, my, what would make sense in my faith. So it, it, yeah, it hit really close for me. Awesome. And Can you I really think appreciate of any it. of the actual military metaphors? Yeah, like ones like there's often like conquer the land or like the targets often, like often in evangelism uh, or like who's your target, yeah, target in terms of the language and your answers or, yeah. and then like even I think like penetrate the subculture yeah. and all these like very masculine, like yeah. you're talking about like penetration, mm -hmm. very masculine <laughs> as well as very like that military, like that combination of military and masculinity I think are really intertwined. One of the things that Allison and I were talking about with this was that those metaphors tended then to move towards there's a definite winner and loser. Totally. You found these kinds of things as you looked at the alternative. Yeah, and I think as we're moving it, as we're in this like culture that then Christianity isn't the primary thing that drives our culture and our government and our social systems anymore. Like our neighbors wouldn't just go to church anymore on Easter or Christmas. This isn't something that's prominent, but that means then that it's like, it definitely has to change how we, we look at this in terms of winning and losing. And all of a sudden it is this totally different process. But I think for me a lot, I'm like, oh, this process doesn't work. It must mean I'm not an evangelist. Yeah. I'm not called to this. I'll let someone else like Billy Graham do that. And I'll just quietly live my Christian life. Right. Yeah. So have you heard, so we do the song? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, sure. Have you heard it, this song? It was a little Ooh, triggering to me. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom on the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Somehow that's just much more chilling hearing children about about kids being in an army. Ken was enjoying it. Oh. I was, I was. I remember that. That, you can, that definitely yeah. harkens actions. back a lot yeah, to yeah, when I, all do the, I, just, I just saw the actions. They all do the actions. <laughs> so you've obviously made this shift from at least solely considering military metaphors in terms of evangelism to these midwifery metaphors. And how do you feel that that's changed your perspective and your thinking on it? Yeah, I think even with that song, is that zoom over the enemy. So it's like, who is the enemy? And I think in military metaphor, then the non-believer is the enemy. Mm -hmm. Different faith, whatever. Totally. And then you're trying to win them over. And it was interesting in my in my research, I interviewed two midwives in Vancouver and um, both of them super passionate about their jobs, so encouraging and interesting just to hear them not talk about faith, but solely their work. And one of them said their favorite part of their job was seeing the woman after she's given birth, how powerful she's like, oh, I could do this mm. and how yeah. powerful I am. And yet I think in the military metaphor, the goal is to break the enemy down and to show how foolish they are and how we win and sort of show how weak they are. Whereas in this metaphor, it's shifting to show that we are all made in the image of God. And so you're showing actually how powerful and amazing people are. And yeah. actually their worldview doesn't then fit. And Christ gives them this hope of actually being a lot more rather than trying to tear them down and show them how wrong they are. You had, yeah. I, to jump in and ask that, like how has it changed your thinking? You, you identified earlier that, that part of this for you was your struggle with evangelism or talking about Jesus or talking. Does this, so has this made that easier or? Yeah, so good. Even last week, I, I'm sorry, I started a new job and so is with new colleagues in a, in a, in a secular school and a public school system. And I still like, I realized how ill infiltrated this is for me that I, so they asked what I do when I'm not at school, I'm a pastor. I was like, oh, I just do other things. I could not <laughs> say it. And, and I like, it was so like, I, so I think this, for a lot of us, if this takes time and grace, like right. and even part of this with military metaphor, there's no grace. You have to get in there and conquer and do it quick. And yet this is how do we, like God is a grace-filled God. So this is, a, with this is linguistic. This is a language change more than like a new strategy. Totally. Yeah. And I think it brings a new strategy, but yeah. I'm presenting the language change right. so that then people can be creative. More patient. Yeah. More yeah. To be able to have what they, and their personality yeah. and how and they Alison, do this. Alison, well. you had some reflections on, because you were interviewing a, a friend who's a midwife as yeah, well. Yeah. Along these same lines, thinking like uh, that instead of making something happen or winning your well, I, I was talking with her and she said that like her job is to, as a midwife, um, that she partners with the birthing mother and she comes and she supports them where they're at. She doesn't come in with her agenda and her plan and how she's going to do this, but she's like, my job is to help this woman deliver her child and to do that in the healthiest, most supportive way that I can. And she... She also, she just loved these military, or sorry, the, the midwife metaphors because she said, once you get into the military thing, 
even the winners are really losers. Nobody comes out of war without scars. She's like, if we can shift that where as a midwife, you're meeting people where they're at. You're there to support them. You're there to bring out the best in them. And I like how you were talking about like as, as a woman who, who's delivered two kids, like the amount of like strength that I found that I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know my body could do this. And I had wonderful, wonderful support that was really encouraging. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what a beautiful metaphor for conversion that totally. it's, it's an awakening within someone to go like, this was in you. Like this has always been here. It's not mm. that God didn't love you before. It's not that God wasn't present before, but you're being awakened to this. Yeah. And just the power that is within that, I think that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And just the variety in that then um, that comes with then what that looks like to be on mission with God mm. allows mm -hmm. for us all in our, it doesn't have to look like a certain type of person or a certain type of situation, mm -hmm. but it can look like so many different things. Well, and it's so positive. Because, I mean, I, the evangelism that, that I grew up with was always starting with the negative. That you go and you save as many people from hell as you can. And you make sure you know that they know that they're a terrible, terrible person. And that God is their only salvation. And, and just starting on the negative there and starting so adversarial and oppositional. Like, this is beautiful that you're, like, you're starting with a positive. And I think that, that that makes so much more sense in my faith that I'm like, no... God, at least how I understand God, is not harsh and cruel and looking to punish us, but like he is there. It's a positive thing. Now, I was at the, I was at the conference where you presented the paper, and if you were uh, in the room, you could notice how positively people responded, right? Mm -hmm. That there's a but that wasn't like a room full of young women or anything. There are a lot of like guys are pastors and old, you know older guys. That, totally. Uh, why do you think people are responding so positively? Like Alan speaks, or Allison speaks about that positive aspect. Yeah, I think like exactly what you're trying to do with this podcast. Where's their hope? Because we are mm -hmm. we're in a society that needs hope, and um, we don't want a naive hope though. Where is this hope that can act can be with our complexity and our differences? And I think like you talked about, there's this, I think, crisis in masculinity that is, well, I don't fit into this mm -hmm. idea of what masculinity is. So like, Matt, my, my goal is that this, that I think this is a women's perspective that brings to the whole church. Mm -hmm. And there's yeah. the problem is that when we think women's things are for women versus what is the diverse voices that can be for everyone. So I think it was, mm -hmm. it was I didn't know it would be fresh. I didn't know what to expect. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked with how yeah, fresh like people found it. Went up to you, circling around you, wanting to hear more. <laughs> like, kind of thing. Oh, a, which is encouraging. I think sometimes mm -hmm. there's a question in, in faith for people who are going through some of these transitions in, in understanding. Uh, is it, is it the faith that they feel kind of embarrassed about or unsure about? Um, and then they can be helped by things like this to say, wait a minute, it's not that. I, I'm, I'm not, I do feel a tremendous hope in my faith in Christ. I do feel like this is moving towards something positive, that this is good news for all, not just those who believe this. Um, and so that it's not, it's not that that has been upsetting or embarrassing to them, but to help them to realize that it is a language thing, which does then alter understanding but it is something that's like i don't want ever to be f to feel like uh, i'm supposed to dominate the other person or tell them how bad they are how totally. wrong they are or something and this opens up do you but has there been pushback for you on this at all like because some people there's a there's a suspicion sometimes on the part of the church to anytime we go to feminine metaphors like you know 
bought as as her instead of right. him and this type of thing. Have you experienced any of that? I haven't explored enough into provi- into talking about this at a wider um, audience to see that yet, but. I do feel the push even in me mm. to be like I knowing knowing to talk to a variety of people to feel like oh like they do they feel like even I do I have the right to share something that's quite feminine and can it be for everyone because I think similar growing up where mm-hmm. it was like you hear masculine things are for everyone feminine things are just for, for women, women yeah. and seeing that so I externally not yet even though I think that definitely could come but internally for sure which is interesting mm-hmm and how do you think that this language and this shift actually functions in, in terms of hope? Like, how, how do you see this actually maybe, like, moving evangelism towards a hopeful instead of just hellbent kind of thing? Because I understand that when, when you're talking in your paper about... the that in midwifery, the outcome is not the only thing that matters, that there is huge value in the experience of the process. And is there a connection between what traditionally evangelicals have said about hell and the fear, like the intense fear of hell, and that this could allow us to maybe move a little ways away? Or what are your thoughts for that? Yeah, and I think I think there is a lot of, of hope, and that hope... I think I see hope as widening our view of God, not shrinking our view mm-hmm. of God. So whereas evangelism, a part, a problem is that what we think about evangelism didn't connect with my idea of God as gracious and journeying with us exactly. and, and the incarnation and coming to be at our level. Whereas this then, but it makes me have to wrestle, like I just said, like being able to like, share with my new colleagues, it made me wrestle with my own faith. And so this is a very holistic approach to evangelism that it makes me also be like what is God birthing in me that I can then journey with others and what is that where's my misconnections between what I think of God with my idea of evangelism and so I think it widens our view of this more robust faith for everyone even Christians yeah. who need to pretend they have the answer rather than I'm journeying to yeah. yeah when you were when you were working on that paper and when you were researching um, did you as you're looking in scripture or your own background as a Christian and in scripture, did you kind of think, well, I'm, I'm kind of pushing this. Most of the metaphors in scripture are masculine or did you? Yeah. I've actually taught the exact opposite where like, so you look at Nicodemus and Jesus talking about like you're born again. Um, Looking at, I was some of this, there's very few, there's not a lot of literature on this, but in spiritual direction, there is some, and that idea of Paul and the fruits of the spirit that God actually, you could connect at that God is birthing these these characteristics of love and patience and hope in us and used to see it across this this amazing that it is whereas the military metaphor is connected to the like the forces that are not of this world it's never to mm, people interesting. and so it doesn't mean that we throw out the military metaphor for totally but i'm saying put it in its proper place and then actually that takes it much more seriously of where mm. we need where we need to be thinking about fighting that's interesting. So you would consider, like, you mentioned spiritual formation, like spiritual formation and direction, and it's a, something that's kind of growing in its, popularity is the wrong word, but in, in Christian circles. So you think some of that works better with these metaphors rather than the military ones? That for sure. I think they've been working with those metaphors for a long time. Yeah. I don't think it's new for the people in spiritual right. direction circles, but now as it's becoming more popular, it's becoming this bigger thing um, for all of us. Like yeah. We can all learn from each other rather than silos of, of information. 
I thought Ken had a question. No, no, I was just <laughs> going to say in, in spiritual direction circles, that, that is one of the images that is predominant in the literature is that a spiritual director is, is like a midwife. And it's interesting for me because I've trained in spiritual direction. When I first heard that, I'm like, that's great, except how can I relate to that? Because I don't feel as if I can be a midwife. Um, but then it made me think, well, how common is that for women who have experienced this predominantly masculine imagery and saying, well, I can't relate to that. So it put me in an awkward position for a little while until I processed it, but then put me in a place of going, oh, yeah, that, I kind of, but that stuff, I get how other people are now affected by that. That stuff is so much more patient. Yeah. So to Allison's point about if, if you're, if you're talking about like rescuing people from eternal fire, right. Um, military metaphor probably works better, totally. right? That you're, whereas patience requires a, a deeper trust that maybe God is good and, mm -hmm. and that, it, you know, the future we're headed towards is good. Where in my upbringing, that wasn't the case. I mean, you'd have around evangelism, you'd have this, you know, famous line, like, you could leave here tonight and get hit by a bus. Or it's always the bus. It's always and, the bus. And There's that, lousy bus drivers out there, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, so apparently. This, I mean, you're talking about finding ways to talk about faith, even that concept alone, right? I get, I shrink back as soon as I hear that kind of thing. Like, right. like, we need to find ways to talk about our faith. And it's like, why are you putting that kind of pressure on me? And yet this is the most important thing to me is, is my faith. And so it's walking in that. So you talk about spiritual formation. It's, but I think patience is, is mm -hmm. such a key that I can see in this, in this midwifery language and the metaphor much more than the military, right? Where it's my action, right. my things that are, yeah. So what do you think? I mean, I don't know if you wrote the paper with like an end game in mind or whether it was just more of like an exploration, but where, what are you hoping is going to come out of this? Like where, where do you hope this conversation goes? Yeah, I hope it empowers the everyday Christian, quote unquote, to see themselves in, in the invitation of God's mission. Um, that is my the goal. And so with that, then we need a new framework for that to happen. And then for them... To, I do give a couple ideas in terms of like what we can do moving forward. And so two, uh, two of those would be storytelling and be able to be confident yeah. sharing my own story, be it even just a five second version of a story, not like my testimony, right. but like just something that God is doing in my life. Whereas I am so scared to share that with anyone who's not a Christian, um, but to share that without having to explain the full theology of it, but just share these everyday things and then question asking and being great at are really being able to ask good questions. Um, and then, but then those are just purposely to, to make me, people have more creative imagination yeah. for what they're part of God's mission in terms of who they're created to be rather than forced into a mold yeah. of what an evangelist is. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Jen. Yeah, it's great. I think this yeah. has been fascinating. I've really, really enjoyed reading your paper mm, and the other books and stuff that you've referenced. And I think that there's a lot of really beautiful, positive, um, things that we can talk about from this. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, thanks this privilege Thank to be you here. so very so much. Yes. Well, we want to thank Jen Richards for being our guest today. And as a thank you to Jen, we want to present her with a bag of the, one of the coffees we tasted, the Pandora Reserva de la Finca. The, the, thank the, the, you. Yeah, so Jen, thank you. We also Great. want to thank JJ Bean for hosting us, allowing us to record here today. <laughs> Uh, and Angela Williams for doing the tasting with us and, and forming us and teaching our palates how to taste things and smell perfume and all that. Uh, JJ Bean opened in 1996 uh, and now has 20 locations in BC, five in Toronto. And so if you find yourself walking by JJ Bean, we encourage you to walk in, check them out, grab yourself a coffee, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.